This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Three D printing has been thought about as a useful tool to make prototypes or trinkets, but. This technology has significantly changed the world of manufacturing. And my next guest says that 3D printing could have a dramatic effect on the global economy. Uh, Dartmouth professor Richard Devaney's new book titled The Pan-Industrial Revolution, How New Manufacturing Titans Will Transform the World, looks at this changing use of 3D printing. He writes that it not only gives companies the ability to manufacture anything in any location, but they can do it far faster than before completing jet engines, cars, planes, and turbines, for example, in days rather than weeks. Devaney is a strategy professor at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College, who joins us right now. Richard, great to have you with us today. Thank you, sir. Yes, thank you very much, Dan. I appreciate being here. Thank you. You know, it's amazing when you think about manufacturing in general, how big it had been when you go back in time like to the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, And then the last few years, there has been this narrative that obviously manufacturing jobs are going away and whether or not we were looking at a a significant decline in manufacturing in general. Is 3D printing maybe taking some of that that loss away? Uh, Yes, in some ways, uh, but nobody knows for sure exactly how much it's going to take back. 3D printing is essentially a method from which powder is converted into a kind of gooey substance that's then put down by layers. Uh, Or in the second uh, biggest uh, uh, type of 3D printing, it's a resin, and the resin builds up as layers on the bottom of an item uh, that's being manufactured, and the resin hardens using light. Uh, So it's not going to create a lot of jobs for people working in the, fact- the factories. Um, this, in, in fact, it's going to create some higher level jobs in the factories. Um, it'll be more engineering types than it will be blue collar workers. Uh, and of course, there'll be a lot of programming jobs for people doing, and design jobs for people doing uh, uh, new product innovation and, and things like that. Uh, but we're going to, uh, so on net, I think that's probably going to result in different uh, in a lower level of people, uh, uh, a lower number of people working in the factories. Um, now, having having said that, uh, we should be uh, cognizant of the fact that the United States has so few people actually making stuff in a factory. Lots of people working for manufacturing firms, but. They're doing marketing and distribution and uh, all kinds of, you know, things like accounting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the people in the United States aren't really going to be affected. The people who are going to be affected are countries in places like Asia where they have uh, lots of employees and lots of assembly going on, and that's going to disappear. Uh, the other place that things will be affected is, is that we'll be able to make an awful lot more here and save all the transportation costs. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and this is going to mean that the balance of trade and the balance of funds uh, isn't going to flow to Asia like it used to. And, and that's part uh, where the term pan-industrial comes from? 
well, pan-industrial comes from the following attribute of additive manufacturing and 3D printing. Uh, a company can make many different products and can switch over between products <clears throat> uh, uh, relatively quickly. There's no retooling. You don't have to make dyes that take three months or, or molds that, uh, that cost $150,000. Uh, you simply download a different file and it prints out uh, a, a new product. So <clears throat> what do you call a company who one day makes parts for cars, the next day makes parts for uh, airplanes, the day after that makes parts for, um, uh, you pick any other metal product that you want, uh, and it keeps going and going and going. Uh, at that point, they're not in any industry anymore. Right. That company um, is what I would call a pan-industrial. In other words, stretches across multiple uh, industries. So then what does the the, uh, the continued growth of 3D printing mean for some of these companies themselves who have been in you know whatever sector they have been in over the last 40, 50, 60 years, either incorporating 3D printing into their operations or will they more be likely to be looking at maybe a third-party company that specifically does 3D printing to be able to get the materials that they really need for whatever it is that they are they are producing for their company? Sure. Uh, <clears throat> that's a really good question. I spent a lot of time looking at uh, that issue and talking to people in advanced manufacturing. And there's two mindsets. One is, is that you can outsource all of that, but you don't have to do it to Asia. You can go to a printer farm in the U.S. But then there's a whole group of other advanced manufacturers who say, no, we'll never do that because we have to worry about quality control. You don't really know what you're getting. Uh, and, and, you know, from day to day, the, the same printer with the same materials can turn out a slightly different product right. because of differences in humidity or temperature in one place or another. So you can't really go to a whole bunch of uh, small places uh, uh, to do it. And the other big question is uh, intellectual property. As soon as you give somebody your design, your, concern, you ha your first concern has to be, you know, how fast will somebody just hit forward and, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and email it to someone else? Um, so... There's a number of reasons why people wouldn't want to go on the outside. Right. And I, I believe that's going to turn out to be important because there's going to be what I call big economies of scope in these pan-industrial firms where, you know, the more products they make, the more they fill up their uh, printing factories. And as a consequence, they're going to want to hold on to more products. We're joined uh, by Richard Devaney, who is the author of the book, The Pan-Industrial Revolution, How New Manufacturing Titans Will Transform the World. Your comments are welcome either by phone at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. A couple of the companies that, that you talk about, one uh, is General Electric, um, which mm -hmm. I find interesting because this is a company that – Obviously, was a, a, a an amazing multinational, multi-aspect company for such a long period of time. They have obviously changed quite a bit. They've been divesting uh, parts of their company over the last few years. 
how is GE going to be affected by something like 3D printing? Well, at one point in time, GE was an industry leader, especially in high-end metals, the kind of metals that you'd use in extreme environments, for example, aircraft and military uh, uh, type uh, applications, uh, or for you know high-end uh, metal uh, uh, implant, uh, uh, medical implants. Uh, <clears throat> but they got waylaid by a whole bunch of different decisions that siphoned off uh, money in, into other businesses that took away from their ability to lead. Um, and so let me give you an example. They, they were losing money in other divisions, and basically the money went to trying to fix up those divisions. While 3D printing, uh, GE Additive bought two companies, uh, and then approximately about $1.4 billion, which you know for GE is chump change. Yep. And, yep. Uh, and they could have easily rolled up and controlled the entire high-end metal business in the world uh, without anybody ever stopping them. Uh, but they didn't. They, they, and this is where they went awry. Um, had they done that, they could have established themselves with a central manufacturing system that would make parts and eventually eliminate assembly by combining parts together mm -hmm. uh, for most of, its, most of its businesses. But right now it's too late because they are fighting the cash battle. And this is one of those things where you get into a downward spiral and it sucks you down the drain. You also mentioned the, uh, the military as well uh, and the implications that it could have uh, for that sector as well. Oh, yes. Yeah, the military is going uh, full bore on uh, trying to use additive manufacturing methods. So I've seen uh, uh, submarine hulls produced out of very special high-end plastics hmm. Uh, done by 3D printing. And I'm not talking about miniature submarines. I'm talking about ones where you'd have a crew of 30 people in it. Um, and uh, similarly, uh, I've been uh, informed that there's uh, a big effort to uh, 3D print the F-35 jet. Wow. Uh, 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 yeah, it's pretty amazing because what they do is they start with a, a basketball court and it's kind of got cables stretched across it and multiple 3D printers move around on the cables and lay down, you know, first the, the feet and then the legs and then the body. Huh. Uh, and, and other 3D printers come in and, and drop inside of the walls of the F-35 um, what they call conductive traces. It's really just a new kind of wire. It carries electricity. Uh, electricity along it. So the, it's already pre-wired. Then they leave a couple of like empty spaces uh, uh, it, for uh, the heavy-duty electronics like communications and weapons systems and countermeasures. And you slide it in there, it hits the, conta uh, the contacts, and it's activated throughout the entire system. So you put in the weapons control and it touches um, the, the uh, wires that, um, uh, that run all the way to the weapons systems on the wings. 
Uh, and so you can update your aircraft um, very, very quickly. Instead of having to fly the whole fleet back to the United States uh, to be retrofitted and you have to pull out all kinds of wires and it takes months, here you pull out the box, somebody's FedExed you the next box, <laughs> and you just stick it in and you've got a whole new a defensive system or a whole new uh, uh, missile launching system. So now the, the the process of building out a jet, what have you heard in terms of the time frame that it takes to do that? Uh, yeah, I've, I've heard a, uh, a couple of things. And again, uh, because there's some secrecy here, yep. y- you get a little bit of distortion in the information. But um, uh, in general, to make an F- 35 jet now it takes two to three years to assemble it just because it's got millions and millions of miles of wires in it yeah to 3d print it with the current technologies uh basically a technology called bam uh big area additive manufacturing it takes about three months and i was talking to an engineer at lockheed martin and he said their goal is to get it down to three weeks and to get this whole printing process so that it will fold up and fit into the back of a truck. Uh, so uh, you can put the container portion on a ship. You can put it uh, in the back of a truck, drive it around. You can put it on a ship and send it somewhere, have it sit in the warehouse, and then you spread out the, um, the basketball court and you know, print a, an Air Force uh, when needed. as kind of just-in-time delivery of an Air Force. Richard uh, Devaney. Richard Devaney is the author of the book, The Pan-Industrial Revolution. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. Uh, so with with having 3D printing as such an important component moving forward, and because of how this will lay out from a business perspective, what do you think having 3D printing is going to me- mean for some of the trade issues that we obviously have seen play out, especially in the in the more recent time? Yeah, well, those issues and implications are going to be uh, uh, kind of a ripple effect that has the potential to change the balance of power in the world. And so we would produce more at home. We would buy uh, any minerals or powders that we needed, powders, medical, uh, metal powders and, and plastic powders. So we'd be buying the raw materials, and then we would print it uh, at home uh, rather than buy components uh, in China and then assembly, uh, assemble it somewhere. Um, so I, I think this is going to have a big impact on countries like China because as I mentioned earlier, there's very few Americans that actually make stuff anymore. And, but in China, that's a whole different story. It's about, you know, probably 60% of their population is engaged in uh, manufacturing that's going to essentially be obsolete. So we are not going to trade as much with them, which means then there's less need for trade wars. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, people won't have the you know, won't have the need to go overseas because they can do just-in-time uh, manufacturing with no or, or low transportation costs because you don't have to ship things over. You can do just-in-time production that because the distance between your factories and and the um, 
uh, retail stores or mm -hmm. the users is very short. So there's a potential that China is going to get caught in a bind. And the bind will be either we adopt or don't adopt. If they don't adopt, they go obsolete. Mm -hmm. If they do adopt 3D printing, they put half of their population out of work, which creates unrest and the legitimacy of the uh, Communist Party starts to fade because they don't have the legitimacy of democracy or human rights or, or even good services like a healthcare system or social security system. They don't have that in China. Um, now, having, having said all of that, what, what does that mean? Um, that means that the balance of power starts to change uh, in two ways. We're keeping more of our own money and investing it in ourselves. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and secondly, we're now buying all the materials. So all of those countries that were selling raw materials to China have now switched to locations like the U.S., and that changes uh, the amount of power that uh, China or the U.S. has over those uh, supplier nations. Uh, so, so I see it uh, as a possibility to strengthen uh, our sphere of influence um, by snatching people out of the control of the, the Chinese. Um, so... So I, I see this ripple effect being really big, um, uh, uh, and we can't really know how it's going to play out yet, but that's my best uh, guess from talking to a lot of experts. Well, you mentioned China, and uh, I, I wanted to expand that a little bit, especially you also mentioned Siemens as, as one of the other companies mm -hmm. you think is going to have a, a great impact in this area. So when you yeah. think about Siemens, a German company, and you think about an entity like the European Union, I would guess that not only is this a business story, but this is also a policy story as well of how governments and maybe even you know joint organizations like the EU are going to look at 3D printing and what the impact of it can be and some of the policies that, that they want to enact in the years to come. Yes, that's a really good point. Uh, in the United States, we, we've got kind of a half-hearted uh, effort to, you know, invest in 3D printing. And uh, whereas in Germany, uh, there are multiple companies all working together, uh, all focused on Siemens and all their car companies, uh, all their metalworking companies are all participating in a kind of joint system. There's lots of government training going on lots of government investment, um, and they're reaching out to other places in Europe to get pieces that they don't have uh, to continue forward in the, uh, um, in the, the progress of, of making 3D printing for mass manufacturing. Uh, so, uh, and in the United States, we don't really do that. We have kind of this crazy idea that everything happens because of the market, um, which just, you know, is a, f a fantasy of uh, economists who've uh, developed models based on faulty assumptions. So if you step back and look at what industries do we lead in, well, we lead in agri agriculture. We've invested an awful lot from the government on, in agriculture right. and agricultural development. We lead in pharmaceuticals. 
Uh, again, all of that research that funds that comes from the government. Uh, we lead in software. The reason that we lead in software is because the very two large, uh, the very first uh, large software systems uh, came from the need for the, from the IRS and the Social Security Administration for large processing. And they hired the, uh, and built up the companies that could produce that. So we can continue on and on and on, but you know, I think the facts show that, that a, a big government project pushes things uh, forward and uh, you know, if I were, uh, you know, the uh, almighty being in control of the world, or especially the United States, mm -hmm. I would declare a Manhattan Project on additive manufacturing, with the hmm. goal of essentially replacing traditional manufacturing methods, so that China's uh, mercantile system—you uh, know, basically they operate like the British Empire. Uh, did in the 1800s, and I, I would just obsolete that. No need for trade wars, no need for military ships and so forth. You just uh, 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 undermine the core of their economy, the thing that they're strongest at. Even though 3D printing is is becoming more and more a norm here, with the technology and, and with the potential uh, for some of the items that can be made through 3D printing, is there a, a need to have a, a, a certain level of security around some of this technology? Uh, yes, I think so, because uh, especially with materials, the, there are a lot of high-end materials that cost a lot to, have, uh, to develop, and you don't want people reverse engineering that. Uh, so uh, I'll give you an example. Remember we were talking about the F-35 jet. Yeah. Um, uh, when they produce this, they use it with, uh, they've been working with a very high-end proprietary plastic that they've developed at Lockheed Martin. Now, this plastic allows you to do all kinds of things, like put honeycomb into the walls of the, uh, of the airplane or the jet. And uh, this uh, uh, lightens the plane and gives you greater range and greater speed. Uh, at the same time, interestingly enough, it strengthens, com uh, compared to metal exteriors, uh, it strengthens the ability to, uh, to handle, you know, kinetic weapons, like missile hits you. If you're in a metal plane, uh, the metal cracks, the guy uh, or woman who's flying the plane uh, ejects and the plane crashes somewhere, and all the, everything goes, you know, down the drain. All those millions of dollars that they spent making it. With the plastic exterior, uh, with this very high-end material, <clears throat> the missile hits the side of the plane. The plane's body bends, doesn't break, and then the computer system adjusts the aerodynamics so it stabilizes the flight of the plane and you can stay in the battle or you can go home and you don't have to throw away the whole plane and ditch it. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, that's a competitive advantage uh, on the military side. And the same thing will happen with making all kinds of things like electronic devices and, uh, you know, you, you name it. Um, so, 
uh, I do think that there's some need to try to protect this, and we have not uh, done a very good job of, of that, um, especially with respect to our um, uh, potential adversaries. What about the role of, of AI in, in comparison to, or I should say, in, in times I would think in partnership with 3D printing as well? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, that's a, that is a very good point. Um, a company called Carbon invented a new way of doing 3D printing. Uh, I don't want to get into all the technology because it's kind of boring. Uh, it's just called Clip. And <clears throat> when they introduced their first uh, printer, it was called the M1, what they did was they connected it to the Internet, and every one of their 3D printers uploaded a million data points a day. Yeah. Uh, and went up into the cloud, and then they analyzed it with artificial intelligence. Uh, the information came down, and uh, and the company then was able to remotely change the settings on printers that weren't working properly, or that weren't you know they they might have been set with the wrong humidity and temperature, uh, and all sorts of other things that improved their performance. And that kind of learning is going to go on and on and on and on. Um, and uh, 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 and it, it's funny, you know, after a, long, uh, a large number of these incremental steps, how smart the machines become. Great having you with us today, Richard. I thank you very much for your time. It's a fantastic look uh, into this world that we're going to see growing in the years to come. Thank you for coming on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Dan. Thank you, Richard Devaney. The book is The Pan-Industrial Revolution, How New Manufacturing Titans Will Transform the World. The book is available in bookstores and online right now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.